All right, Ezra Nehemiah, name of the series, Ezra Nehemiah, Let Us Rise Up and Build. This is lesson number seven, entitled, When Ordinary Men Do Extraordinary Work. This is part two. And this class is the, is the last lesson in this particular series. So we've been studying a, a portion of the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as other leaders that uh, God uh, raised up in order to lead a remnant of the Jewish nation that had been held in exile in a foreign land for 70 years. So we're, we're, we've read about them being exiled and while they were there, and then you know we've explained the idea that they didn't just all come back one day, all at the same time. Uh, they returned in waves, if you wish. One of the things that was important is that uh, while they were there in exile, uh, many of them abandoned finally the idolatry that had initially caused the destruction of their nation and their temple. They finally gave it up. They also drew closer together and they maintained their cultural and their religious integrity by not taking foreign spouses while they were uh, in exile. And so for these reasons, when God called them to return, these culturally pure Jews, along with priests and Levites, were able to rebuild the Jewish society and fulfill the task as the chosen people of God who would bring the Messiah to mankind. So they were ready. They went, into, you know, they went into captivity not knowing what their future was. It looked pretty bleak. You know, they would be absorbed into the Babylonian culture. But they weren't. They maintained their cultural and religious heritage. They were faithful while they were in, uh, while they were in captivity. And they were ready. When God called them to come back, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, they were ready uh, to come back. So in our final lesson, I'd like to describe the things that we, as God's people today, can expect when he calls on us to take on a great task. What to expect. Now, what's interesting about Nehemiah's story is that once he accepted the call of God to serve, he was fully confident that God would provide. He never doubted that God would provide for, you know, for the job that he was asked to do. The point I'm trying to make in this lesson is that we need to understand that when God calls us to build or, uh, you know, to do something on his behalf, and we accept that call, we can expect certain things from God. For example, we can expect resources. When God gives you a job to do, he doesn't send you out empty handed. He will provide the resources you need to finish the job. It's one of the lessons that Ezra and Nehemiah teaches us. Now, most people believe and understand this idea, but they get tripped up in the way that God provides. So I want to talk about that a little bit. How God provides. Well, first of all, he provides from his resources not our resources. Nehemiah was a slave. He was an important slave. You know, he was a well-positioned slave. You know, he was a cupbearer, but he was a slave nonetheless. And he had no freedom to leave or to gather any wealth. He had no wealth of his own. 
To give him the job of rebuilding the wall seemed illogical because he had no resources. But God provided the key resources for the job through the king of Persia, Nehemiah's master, and a pagan to boot. God demonstrated that the work was his to commission and all the resources belonged to him as well, even the resources that were controlled by the pagan king. So, you know, we sometimes get discouraged because our strength and our experience and our money and our numbers are not equal to the job. But God is not limited by our personal resources because he provides from his resources and his resources are not simply physical things. They're spiritual things. The most difficult things to kind of put our put our physical hands on at times. So we're always amazed and we're always humbled when we see where God finds what we need in order to do uh, the job. Who knew? uh, Just an example because we we all know the story. Who knew back in 2005 when our son-in-law Hal and his wife Emily decided to move to Montreal as an adventure Let's go live in French Canada and learn French and, you know, live close to mom and dad and see what that life is like. And they, they were living in, you know, in Oklahoma. Who knew that he would come and say, hey, why don't we start streaming your lessons online? And I figure, what's streaming? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, who knew? But God provided the resource to a missionary working in the middle of nowhere with a very small church with no real money, no power, no nothing, no connections, and managed to do a great thing. He provided the resource that I needed and he provided how the resource that he needed because he wanted to do something for the Lord but wasn't sure what he could do. Another thing that we need to notice about what to expect God provides at his pace, not our pace. Nehemiah first received permission to go, then a letter permitting him to use the king's forest for the wood. He began the job with the basics, and as he moved from stage to stage in the building process, God would supply his needs at every step. Sometimes what he needed were the words to inspire the people who were afraid and ready to quit. And God supplied these as well. You know, Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a preacher. And yet God provided him the spiritual resources he needed at the time that they were most necessary. We always want all the money up front. You ever notice that? We want all the money up front. Sure, Lord, I'll do that. But let's have all the money up front and then we'll, we'll take a step. That's not how it works. We always want assurances on the table that everything will go smoothly before we take on the job that God gives us to do. It's not that God is slow or cheap or possessive with his resources. It's that he uses them to build our faith as well as to build the project. While we're building the project, 
He's building our faith. That's how it works. The goal wasn't just building a wall to protect the Jews in their city. It was to build their faith in God, who was the only one who could really protect them. Do you really think that the wall was protecting them? That the wall would protect them from everything? Of course not. It was God who was protecting. If the Lord doesn't guard the city, what happens to the city? (laughs) It's not really protected, is it? Another thing about God when he provides, he provides the full amount. Study each person that God called upon to do a job. You know, think about Moses and think about uh, Noah or Solomon or the apostles. And each one always had enough to finish the task. God provides from unexpected or unusual sources at times. For example, the angel wipes out the Assyrian army without a single Jewish soldier uh, lost in, in, in Hezekiah's story. Or 300 men defeat 300,000 men in the story of Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? You know, God is saying, too many men. You got too many guys. You got too many guys. You reduce that. You know, 3,000 guys. Oh, still got too many guys. You know, I mean. Joseph provides for his long lost family in Egypt. How strange was that? How God provided for Joseph's family. Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish for the thousands who were there to hear him preach. And the early church sells its personal property to provide for the poor. How are we going to provide for these poor? I mean, all of a sudden we've got 3,000 people who are in the church in in a single day and they're being converted day by day and the church is expanding and there there are people who've come from out of town in order to, to be here and they don't want to leave. They want to hear the gospel and so on. How are we going to ever provide for these people? We don't have any money. We're not rich people. People just step up and say, well, I've got a piece of land over here. I'm going to sell that and give it to the church and you God does not dishonor himself by giving us a job to do and then not providing enough resources for it. The resources are always there, but we have to open our eyes and we have to open our hearts in order to recognize them at times. Sometimes the right person or the right thing or the right idea is right right in front of us. But we, we won't open our eyes to it. Another thing I want to say about this, when, when we accept to serve God in some way, first, you know, expect the resources for the job. Expect that. Secondly, expect opposition. Just because it's God that gives the job and the objective is to honor him, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. You know, Nehemiah continually faced opposition to his plan from everybody, the neighboring kings, as well as his own people. You know, I used to complain to God about these type of problems uh, when I was trying to accomplish certain things. I, re- I, you know, in writing this lesson, I could remember my prayers, my own prayers to God when, you know, I was in the mission field and working for a small congregation and just, you know, all the difficulties that that brings. 
And I remember praying, why don't you just let me do it? (laughs) I remember saying, why all this trouble? I'm doing this for you. Isn't this for you? Isn't it right? Isn't it the good thing? Why can't we accomplish the good that we're trying to do? And I would say to him, why are you putting all these obstacles in my way? Well, of course, I realized he wasn't putting the obstacles in my way. It was the the snake that was putting the obstacles in my way. But still, I would complain to him, why are you making this so difficult? Then I realized God doesn't cause the hassle. Satan causes the hassle because whenever God gives a person a job to do, Satan will be there to frustrate his plans in every conceivable way. He uses outside influences of evil men. He uses the inside influences influences of our own weaknesses, our own sins. He uses division, indifference, laziness, lies, discouragement to thwart any plan that will honor God. Most of the times, the good things you want to do, you see it. It's the good thing. It's the right thing. It'll work, blah, blah, blah. And the person who's, who's blocking it is not some bad guy out there. It's some guy in here. And that's what it's all about. Any job you get from God is an opportunity to honor God in some way and Satan is determined not to let that happen. He doesn't want God to be honored in a, a you know, big, huge congregations in Dallas somewhere. You know, he doesn't want God to be honored there, but he doesn't want God to be honored either in some 50-member church out in the boondocks somewhere. He just doesn't want God to be honored by anyone. So if someone steps forward to do something, you can be sure there'll be opposition. As I say, if God gives us a job, you can be sure that the snake will be there to uh, cause trouble from the word go. And then finally, when we're called on to serve, another thing to expect, uh, victory, victory. Nehemiah used the resources and and, and withstood the enemy, the threats, the internal division, the fatigue and the discouragement. And in 52 days, he built the wall. And last week I gave you the dimensions of that wall, right? 40 feet high, two and a half miles around, eight feet thick, 34 towers, 10 gates. I mean, 52 days. When God gives a job, he provides the resources, he sustains us through the trouble, and he expects victory. So should we. Nehemiah's victory was dramatic, and it was inspiring, and it had the advantage of happening in a short amount of time. But in the work of the Lord, the victory is not always accomplished in 52 days, sometimes not even in 52 years. Abraham, for example, died never seeing the nation that God had promised him. Moses died, never entering the promised land. David died, never seeing the temple. Paul died, never seeing Christianity become the religion of the empire. 
Sometimes the job is a long term one and, and you may not see the victory in your lifetime. That's, that, that's walking by faith. But if God calls on you to rise up and build, expect the victory sooner or later, because if it comes from the Lord, nothing will be able to stop the victory. Nothing. It's just, do we have the faith to continue hoping and serving, even when the final victory doesn't occur in our lifetime? So Zerubbabel, as I summarize this uh, section that we've done, Zerubbabel, you know, the first wave, and Ezra, and then Nehemiah and others, took on the task of rebuilding the city and the temple and the wall for an ultimate purpose they were not aware of. They were doing all of this with the primary goal of rebuilding the city so Jews can live in their own city once again and rebuilding the temple so the people could worship God at the temple in the proper way. You know, that, that was their goal. It was a good goal, but that wasn't God's ultimate goal. His ultimate goal that they were not aware of was to prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ that would happen some 400 years down the road. Remember I said to you sometimes it's not even in your lifetime. How do you know? How do we know there are things we're doing right now that are directly preparing the world for the return of Jesus? How do we know? We don't know. We don't know. That was the part of the job that no one but God knew at the time. All of that work and effort to protect a group of people who would later produce the Savior from their midst. They only thought, well, it's important for us to stay together and worship the Lord. Yes, maybe one day, you know, the the Messiah will come. Today, we are charged with preaching the gospel to the entire world to grow the kingdom and be constant witness to everyone for the return of Jesus Christ who will judge the world and exalt the church at the end of time. We're not here to change the world. We're not here to save the world. You know what I'm saying? Save the world. We're here to tell the world that Christ is coming. The world is like a house on fire. And we're here to say, get out. Come out. Come to safety. Come into the church. The safe place. All these people trying to save the world. There is no saving the world. All these people trying to save the climate. There is no saving the climate. Our task today points to this ultimate purpose. Our advantage today is that we have not only been called to build the kingdom on earth. We also know why God has asked us to do this. You know, there is not much left of what Nehemiah and the others built back in that time. Only a small portion of one wall remains near where the temple once stood and now is the mosque, the uh, Dome of the Rock. They call it the Western Wall. Many call it the Wailing Wall. It's a place where tourists visit and Jews go to pray and weep remembering the glory of a, uh, of a past era. 
We, on the other hand, are building to eternity because the job we've been given to do is to build a kingdom that will last forever. There's no wailing wall for us. There will be no wailing wall for us. Let us therefore arise and build that kingdom in whatever place and whatever time the Lord has called on us and do so remembering, remembering that he will provide the resources, that he will provide the power to overcome opposition. Don't worry about don't worry about Russia taking over this and China taking us over and the, the, you know we're running out of fuel and the, the sun will stop in the sky. Don't worry about that stuff. Those are distractions. Our task is not to worry about those things. Jesus has told us, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going. Don't worry about that stuff. He says the Gentiles worry about that. Let them worry about that. Our concern, I'm not worried, our concern is the kingdom. How is the kingdom doing? How can we help the kingdom to grow? That's our task. And if we continue this way, he will grant us the victory to his honor and glory forever. Amen. One last point in this lesson and series will be yours. This is a a bit of hard-won wisdom for those who feel They have been called uh, to build something, whatever that may be. I want you to keep in mind what we've studied so far and remember what I call the simple rules about finishing. I refer to it as the art of finishing. If you as an individual or a group want to finish what you start, here are a couple of rules. First, remember and understand that finishing is always, always harder than starting. So many of life's great ideas and projects and plans, businesses, causes, relationships, missions have been left unfinished because people didn't understand this very simple but important truth. The first wave of people returning to Jerusalem were excited to get things going, but they abandoned the work at the first sign of opposition. (laughs) 20 years went by before they started up again. So many don't realize that the rush that you get and the enthusiasm that you have and that accompanies the beginning of a project rarely lasts until the end. People are propelled along with that first flush of excitement when they begin. But when their jets cool down, so does their dedication and their commitment. With time, most of their energy is spent looking for a way out of the project instead of a way to finish the project. I've been at enough meetings. (laughs) I've been on enough committees and enough meetings to see this happen in real time. Everybody's excited at meeting number one. At meeting number nine, half the, half the crew is trying to figure out ways uh, how to cancel this project because it's just too hard or too much or we'll never make it and so on and so forth. A great modern example of this phenomenon is the, the marathon, the marathon run. Some of you are runners, you know what I'm talking about. 
Back in Montreal, where I come from, there is the Montreal International uh, Marathon every summer. 10,000 or more runners from all over the world start that 26-mile race. It's on Jacques Cartier Bridge there. You see in the inset, that's where the, 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 the race begins. They shut that bridge down for that particular day. And of course, the TV cameras are always there, right? They, they show the guys, at the guys and girls, at the beginning, everybody's charged up, everybody's smiling, they're stretching, they're loosening up, uh, high fives, you know, pinning on their numbers, taking pictures and selfies. It's a wonderful day. The marathon, the start of the marathon. But what a difference at the halfway or the three-quarter mark of the marathon. Gray faces, people, you know, uh, vomiting on the side of the road saying, I shouldn't have had that burrito for breakfast. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They're falling down from exhaustion. Seemed like a good idea. I'm going to run the Montreal Marathon. You know, I'll just stay with the pack. (laughs) Halfway through. And then if you're at the end, The ones who finish the race, their eyes are glazed, their legs feel like two lead weights, total burnout of their lungs, just gasping to cross the finish line. So the ones who do cross the finish line, they know from the beginning that the end was going to be much, much harder than the beginning. Those are the ones that finish. They knew that this would hurt. This is one of the reasons that Nehemiah succeeded. His starting line was the wall and it was 52 day adrenaline rush. But you keep reading in his book, chapter 7 to 13, and you'll see that his task was far from over when the wall was done. That was just the beginning. Nehemiah had to persevered through the reorganization of that society. He had to reestablish their feasts and their covenants to obey God. He had to reinstate the collection of tithes in order to support the service of the temple. And he had to organize a, a national feast day to dedicate the wall itself. He even had to return from, for a time in order to rebuke the people for backsliding and for being, well, you know, once everything was done, he went back, uh, you know, to the king and a little while later found out that nobody was going to the temple. Nobody was paying the, the tithes. The priests were marrying foreign, you know, the whole thing had fallen apart. He had to go back and last week, you know, we talked about maintenance. He had to do maintenance work. Nehemiah was as fervent for the task God had given him at the beginning as he was at the end. He never gave up his enthusiasm. So when we begin something with the understanding that it will be much, much harder to finish than it is to start, We have a much better chance of reaching our goal because we go in with our eyes wide open. Another thing, if you want to be a finisher, you must resolve that nothing will stop you from finishing. Nothing. 
Finishers keep trying every day until the job is done. I'm going to get this done or it's going to kill me. Whatever the challenge, whatever the task, whatever the struggle, you're training to master a sport or to make the team, you want to break a sinful habit, you're building a relationship, you're building a wall, you're building a marriage, you're building a congregation, no matter what the obstacles, you are not going to quit. You know how they used to say the good soldiers, they, they come back on their, on their shields. On their shields. Thomas Edison examined over 1500 formulas and experiments before getting his invention of the light bulb to work. The difference between failure and success is not just strength or wealth or talent. The real difference between individuals is the resolution not to quit under any circumstances. Oh yes, God provides the resources and the direction and the victory, but we are the ones that decide if we're going to persevere or not. He can't make that decision for us. Actually, the true point of victory, I'll tell you, the true point of victory happens at the moment you decide not to quit, no matter what the cost. That's the point where you win. You run into a wall and you just you fall down and you're down no matter you know how you want to see that you know metaphorically physically you're down and you decide this hurts I don't know if I could take another shot like that but I'm not going to quit that at that point you just won You may not have crossed the finish line, but you just won right there. People can treat you unfairly. They can make life difficult for you. Circumstances can work against you. Satan can continually tempt you and bother you. But you remain in control of the decision to quit or not to quit. You're in charge of that. And finally, if you want to be a finisher... Remember that rewards are only given to finishers, not starters. Quitters, they have stories. They have excuses. They have complaints. They have reasons. But the prizes go to those who finish. For example, salespeople, they get a commission if they close the deal, not just if they show the product. And marathoners, they get to say, I ran the Montreal Marathon only if they cross the finish line. I mean, it's a thing among marathoners. You don't say, oh, I ran such and such a race if you didn't finish it. And God preserved the history of Nehemiah's ministry because he finished his task. Otherwise, the book would be about somebody else. Somebody else would build that wall. Of course, the consummate finisher was our Lord Jesus Christ. When he began his ministry, the crowds were with him. They they, they tried to make him king because they saw his miracles and they heard his wisdom. But take a look at the end of his life, however. He was alone, he was beaten, humiliated, totally rejected and nailed to a Roman cross. And yet he was able to say, 
it is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. He began gloriously, he struggled through the obstacles and he finished on a bloody tree. All done to receive his reward. And his reward, believe it or not, was not his resurrection. His resurrection was never in doubt because he was without sin. His reward was the possibility of our resurrection through his sacrifice on that cross. That was his reward. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Jesus finished his difficult course in this life so that all of us would have the opportunity to obtain resurrection into the next life. And it's worth reading uh, chapter 9, verse 24 and 5. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable well, but we an imperishable uh, uh, crown, if you, uh, if you wish. No matter what you are building in the name of the Lord, I pray that you will, with God's grace and mercy, complete the task and receive the imperishable crown of life as you cross the, as you cross the finish line. I, I want to thank you and I pray that God blesses you with every good thing in Christ and that this series has given you strength and encouragement for whatever uh, you're building in your, in your life and in your family. All right, we're dismissed. Thank you for your attention.